0: We are ready. We're gonna we're gonna start now. Let me let me first. Uh, so let me kick it off. Well, good morning to everyone in Singapore. Good evening to um, our friends in, in the US. Um, and welcome to the second part of um, uh, a two two part uh, series that the Middle East Institute has organized with the um, with the AJC. The um, um, which is. Uh, the American Jewish Committee. Um, As Carl, my colleague, would have told you all last week, this is the first time that we've collaborated with the AJC. I hope it isn't the last. Um, And uh, I think I want to thank both uh, Mr. Jason Isaacson for taking the time late at night to come and speak to us. But also, uh, I would like to thank Shira Loanberg. I'm not sure if Shira's online, but uh, to thank her and the and her team at the AJC for working with us to put this event together, I wish the time difference wasn't so wide to so be a bit more civilized for everybody, but it is what it is, you know. Um, let me talk a little bit about this morning session. Last week, we we actually talked about uh, the dynamics, the questions about the dynamics between, behind the landmark signing of the Abraham Accords. What who might come next? Um, you know, we looked at. Israel and, and, and the, 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 kind of the states of the Middle East, uh, these, this, this new detente that seems to have occurred, what this means, will it hold? What, what does the future lie, say for, for the Middle East? A bit hard to predict. You know, there are many unknown factors, but I think last week, the very enlightening session with Mr. Jason Isaacson. And this morning, we will talk about the United States. I think I can't quite call the US the elephant in the room, although it is a massive country. But um, one doesn't look at the Middle East without asking the question about the U.S. There have been many, many uh, comments that the U.S. is withdrawing from the Middle East, that it is scaling back, scaling down, which I I don't really agree with. Um, I don't think that U.S. foreign policy, regardless of whether it's a Trump administration or a Biden administration, will completely withdraw from the Middle East. You don't see their assets being moved. I think those will will stay. Um, There are obviously clear strategic reasons for why the US will want to stay engaged in the Middle East. And it is not really necessarily about oil. Uh, You know, uh, you have to look at the geographical location of the Middle East. You need to look at the dynamic of that region. And you have to ask yourself, you know, Are there key existential questions that, we, that are tied into how the US views the Middle East? But let me stop here and hand over to Mr. Jason Isaacson. And I will just say this again, although I'm sure those of you who came last week know him quite well. He is the Chief Policy and Political Affairs Officer of the Global Jewish Advocacy. Um, he has played a central role in shaping the organization's diplomatic and political profile since he assumed the position of Director of Government and International Affairs in Washington, D.C. in 1991. Um, prior to that, he had served in senior staff positions in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives and um, also spent a decade as a journalist. Um, for more than a quarter of a century, he has maintained close contact with officials and civil society leaders across the Middle East and North Africa. I think all this background tells you that uh, we, we speak to someone who is in probably one of the best positions to actually enlighten us on some of perhaps the less obvious aspects of um, the impact of the US elections on US foreign policy in the Middle East. Mr. Isaacson, I hand over to you.
1: Michelle, thank you very much. You flatter me, I'm really grateful for uh, that very warm reception and um, and also want to welcome to this call uh, my AJC colleagues, uh, Shira Loenberg, whom you identified, and also Dylan Adelman, who are on, on the line as well. And I'm looking to see if there's anyone else I don't see on this screen in front of me. But um, but AJC is proud to partner with uh, the Middle East Institute in, in this series of programs. And and no, it will not be the end of our collaboration. I'm hoping it's just the very beginning of our collaboration. So. Um, so look forward to more programs in which your um, uh, professors and, and students can participate in programming with HAC and and our staff and uh, and lay leaders in our organization can take part in, in some of your programs as well. And then I hope in the not too distant future actually be together in person. Um, so last week I I spoke with you about um, the Abraham Accords and the lead up to that and where we go from 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 here. The signing of agreements between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and what other countries might be in line, and, and, and how the Trump administration helped to sort of engineer uh, this process, um, its own inherent intrinsic uh, momentum assisted by the Trump administration as well. Uh, this is a subject in which I've spent a great deal of time and, 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 and flown a great many miles to kind of lead up to that point. Um, I'm very pleased with the role that AJC played as a kind of a contributing factor in helping to prepare the ground for the trust that was necessary, the risks that people were willing to take, the um, the confidence that they had that that, that they could actually proceed um, with the momentum that, uh, that was, uh, the, the, the courage, excuse me, that was necessary in order to, break out of old ways of thinking and establish relations between Israel and Arab states in the absence of progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front, which of course had been the the, the structure that everyone had assumed um, would, 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 would have to be in place before there could be peace between Israel and other Arab states after Jordan and Egypt. Um, that's a subject on which I've spent, as I said, many years uh, working on. Um, the subject that I'm addressing this morning um, is, has always been a, kind of a background in, in my work in AJC and uh, and every four years, of course, we have a presidential election and I and my colleagues in the Washington office of AJC become instant experts in the policy positions of the two parties and the two candidates for president. Um, uh, clearly, between presidential elections, we're in touch with members of Congress on a range of political issues. But, but, but stopping and pausing right now, just, um, four weeks. Uh, actually, for you, it's four weeks minus a day. For me, it's still four weeks from the presidential election uh, that will be so so decisive in the United States. Um, uh, this kind of stopping and pausing and examining how the outcome of an election will influence Middle East policy um, is something that um, I haven't spent 25 years doing. It's something that I do every four years. Um, so, I, 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 I don't think that I'll be able to give you the same intensive, (laughs) richly textured 50-minute lecture that I surprised myself in giving last week. I think it'll be a little shorter. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the question and answer period that will follow my uh, my opening remarks. Um, But let me back up before talking about how I expect a Trump administration will handle Middle East issues, a second, excuse me, Trump administration will handle Middle East issues versus how a Biden presidency would handle Middle East issues. uh, To just talk generally about kind of American president's um, regard for the Middle East, involvement in the Middle East over the last, let's say 30 years that I've been involved um, in my position at HAC. And I came to HAC in in July of 1991, um, which was um, just a few months, five months after the end of the first Gulf War. Um, Of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union was in the not very distant background. It was a period of maximum American visibility and least and of course, in the first Gulf War, um, President George H.W. Bush had assembled a a coalition of 35 countries led by the United States with UN support uh, to push Iraq out of Kuwait Um, and and, and had developed in the course of that, in the course of assembling this coalition and working very carefully and closely with, uh, with Arab partners, developed a very close relationship. Um, even closer than, than the relationships that had existed, which were primarily economic relationships, obviously with a strategic component, but not with the same degree of military cooperation that had to exist in order to make the first Gulf War a success. Um, there's a great deal of delicacy involved in how to bring Israel into this mix. Israel was not a member of the coalition. It would have upset the the, the the Arab allies for Israel to be an active participant but israel 's decision in consultation with the United States to be helpful by not joining the coalition um, was also considered a something of value to the Arab states. Um, Israel was attacked directly by Iraq, of course, in the course of all of this, um, chose not to respond in a way that would upset the plans of the coalition. Um, fast forward to July of 1991, um, I joined AJC. October of 1991 was the Madrid Peace Conference that I spoke about last week. as really the opening act in this new Phase of peacemaking in the Middle East. So the United States played a very strong role, of course, in convening these partners, these 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 uh, parties from the Arab world as well as Israel, as well as the Palestine Liberation Organization. Um, it was uh, an exercise which en- engineered by Secretary of State Jim Baker uh, with strong support of President George H. W. Bush. Um, the f- That that conference in Madrid in October of 1991 was followed by the multilateral phase of the peace conference in Moscow of 1992. So we now had the United States and now Russia as partners in moving this process forward. The United States very heavily engaged in the Middle East, very focused on the Middle East. Um, President uh, George H.W. Bush did not win re-election in uh, November of 1992. uh, Just a 10 months or, or so after the opening of that conference in, in Moscow. Um, he was succeeded by, um, by, by Bill Clinton. And under Bill Clinton, um, although it wasn't an American initiative, you had the Oslo Accords um, signed in Washington, but obviously initiated by the Israelis and Palestinians together by um, Israeli uh, uh, professors and, and Palestinian interlocutors. Um, and, then, and then the Israeli government playing an ever more active role as that moved forward. You had the Jordan Peace Agreement. Um, You had uh, Oslo II in 1995. Uh, You had an attempt uh, in the last year of President Clinton's tenure, uh, his second administration, uh, to bring the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, to uh, some kind of a conclusion uh, at Camp David, um, negotiations that failed. Um, And then you had the outbreak of the Second Intifada uh, in the fall of of 2000, the last months of uh, of the Clinton administration. But again, an administration that was focused on the Middle East, um, uh, had developed a set of relationships, w- was there for the good times in the 90s. Um, good times that were interrupted, of course, by, by terror attacks as well. Um, but but, but, but some, some good years in the, in the mid to late 90s. Um, and the administration was in, in close partnership with Israel, as well as with some states that were starting to feel around the edges of a relationship with Israel. So you had, of course, in that period, Um, Qatar and Oman and Morocco and Tunisia, establishing low-level relations with Israel um, from the uh, mid-90s until the outbreak of the Second Intifada in the fall of 2000. Um, Bill Clinton left office uh, in in January of 2001. He was succeeded by George W. Bush, the son of George H.W. Bush. Um, And of course, it was in the fall of of 2001, September 11th, uh, that the world changed. Um, and and you had a very different kind of a focus on the Middle East. You had preparations for war. Um, you had first, of course, the um, war in Afghanistan, uh, which launched uh, not long, not very long after 9/11, um, uh, to, uh, to 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 try to root Al Qaeda out of uh, out of Afghanistan. And then you had um, within uh, a year and a half uh, the build-up to uh, to the second the second Gulf War. And so you had um, for much of the George W. Bush administration, um, a continuing involvement in the Middle East and a focus on the Middle East, but a very different kind of involvement, a very different kind of focus than what you had in the years after the first Gulf War and through the the Clinton administration. Um, But but an attempt at uh, Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, um, again, toward the end of the George W. Bush administration, the Y uh, conference that was very ambitious didn't produce a result. Um, you had a, a close relationship between the United States and the State of Israel, um, but also some criticism of Israeli settlement policy. Um, very carefully balanced uh, approach that the that the George W. Bush administration took. Um, but the United States was 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 mired in the, in the Iraq War through so much of, uh, of the George W. Bush administration, and then you had Obama. Obama comes in. Um, His first foreign trip is to Canada, but uh, within a few months, he's in Turkey. And then in in the late spring, early summer of his first year in office, um, he goes to Cairo and he delivers a major speech. um, Very unusual for a president to deliver in the first six months in office, uh, a speech in an Arab capital. Um, And he he, he promised uh, a very different approach to the Arab world than had existed under his predecessor uh, under George W. Bush, of course, uh, there was a great deal of antagonism stirred up toward, his, toward the United States. a great deal of dis- mistrust um, so many lives were lost in, in, uh, in, in Iraq. Um, so many civilians died in the course of, uh, of, of of toppling the government and the mess that was made uh, in the course of that uh, disbanding the army and you know the whole story. Obama had a different idea; um, he wanted to. Um, have America be seen in a different way uh, through Arab eyes, um, and and he he, he promised um, progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front, um, respecting Palestinian rights, um, working obviously closely with Israel, but uh, but 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 taking a, a different approach than uh, than had existed before, um, which was of concern to some Israelis um, was of uh, was was received with great satisfaction by some in the in, in the Arab world. But then, of course, you had in the course of of the Obama administration, uh, in, in, um, in 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 two thousand, the end of two thousand ten and, and early two thousand eleven. So, in the last year and a half of the of the first uh, Obama administration, the first term, uh, the outbreak of the Arab Spring. And in the course of the outbreak of the Arab Spring, you had a a, a, a vision that was telegraphed across the Arab world, across the the monarchies of the Arab world and the autocracies of the Arab world. And you know, if, you, if, you, if you count those against the democracies, it's a pretty unbalanced equation. So it really is virtually every Arab state um, saw the image of the president of the United States as they saw it throwing the leader of the most important Arab state, the leader of the Arab world historically, maybe not in actual fact currently, um, under the bus, um, when Hosni Mubarak was besieged by, uh, by, by, by his people in uh, Tahrir Square. Um, the American president, instead of standing by his longtime friend and ally Hosni Mubarak, um, went with the crowd and saw that the pages of history had turned and uh, Mubarak, uh, it was time for him to go. Um, and ushering him out and, and, and making it seem as though the United States was pushing him out, and there was some dispute about that. Uh, nevertheless, uh, earned great discredit to the United States in the eyes of many in the Arab world, certainly Arab leaders. Um, <coughs> I, I don't doubt that there were um, people in the public in the Arab world who um, welcomed this uh, fresh approach by the United States. Excuse me, <coughs> but leadership across the Arab world, certainly in the Gulf, Certainly, in Egypt, um, in the years following, uh, saw in this uh, great danger and a lack of uh, of consistency and and friendship and uh, and in fact, of course, what I was hearing frequently in the years uh, subsequent to that, when I'd be visiting Arab capitals, that uh, the assumption was that Obama was. Uh, in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood, wanted the Muslim Brotherhood to come in and, and, uh, and rule in Egypt and, the, and therefore uh, was happy to uh, discard uh, Hosni B'abarak. Uh And this left a terrible stain on uh, on, on the American reputation in, in uh, many capitals in the Arab world. Um, and then you had, um, in the course of the uh, Obama administration, of course, the Arab Spring um, uh, Proceeded in various ways uh, throughout the course of 2011 um, on into 2012, obviously, we're still seeing the um, dissolution of, of of Syria endlessly for the last, uh, last eight years. Um, there was an, admi- an attempt, of course, in the Obama administration to focus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict under uh, Secretary of State John Kerry. Um, it was... Uh, Good effort, lasted 10 months, resulted in a, a freeze on uh, certain kinds of settlement activity by the Israelis, um, a complete uh, uh, disregard for the possibilities of progress by the Palestinian leadership, which really never engaged uh, fully in any serious way, uh, much to the disappointment um, of, of American uh, diplomats who really earnestly wanted to see if they could push this uh, push this forward. Um, so you had a, um, a disre- disregard for the United States in many Arab capitals. You had an attempt to resolve the, Aris- the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which went nowhere, and then you had the last chapter of the Obama administration and the end of his second term, um, a famous Security Council resolution that the United States did not, as it typically would, veto a uh, resolution that was critical of Israel, critical of settlement policy, um, and uh, and therefore, the end of the Obama administration, you had a president who was despised by many in the Arab world and also despised by the Israeli leadership, um, had tried to make certain progress, um, broke a lot of eggs, didn't make, any, uh, didn't make any breakfast out of any of it. And then President Trump comes in and in, in the months before he takes office, um, uh, he is already meeting with uh, Israelis and Palestinians um, and his, uh, his, his staff are as well, his son and others, his, excuse me, his son-in-law and others. Um, and, and from the very beginning, it was clear that in the Trump administration, you would have a different approach to Israel and the Palestinians. You would have a different approach to the Arab world so that the first foreign trip that uh, President Trump make, made, of course, was to Saudi Arabia. Um, it was a complicated trip. It was in Saudi Arabia, second, second place, second stop was Israel um, and the West Bank, and the Vatican, Rome, I think Brussels. I'm leaving something out. I think it's. I think it was end, maybe ending in Brussels. Um, but, but, but the image, the the message that came from um, President Trump was that Israel was America's ally and friend, and um, the United States would do whatever it could to um, to help Israel and to. Basically, achieve whatever objectives the gov- government of Israel wanted. And if the government of Israel thought that it was in its interest to um, uh, build more settlements in the West Bank, there might be occasional um, uh, very mild criticism expressed in certain quarters of the State Department, but from the president, not much. Um, he did at one point say early on, I remember a press conference where he was standing in, in the White House with Prime Minister Netanyahu by his side, and he he gave some kind of vague signal about, uh, you know, of course, you know that you're gonna have to make certain compromises too, Bibi, that kind of message. Um, but in point of fact, um, it was pretty much a green light for the um, for the Netanyahu government to, uh, to proceed as his coalition thought it was necessary to proceed to uh, assure the rights of um, Israelis or Israeli Jews who were living in the West Bank and wanted to, expand their families, expand their homes, um, uh, have other people move into the neighborhood. Um, very critical of Palestinian leadership. So you had a president who had met early on with the Palestinian leadership and had promised that he would try to make some progress and he understood the Palestinians and would want to help them secure um, uh, a better life. But um, but 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 after an initial few months, it was very clear that um, this administration was going to take a different approach. Was not going to follow the usual pattern of uh, of, of predecessors who had insisted on this Palestinian-Israeli conflict first, then maybe uh, in in keeping with the Arab Peace Initiative and the standard way of thinking that had prevailed for decades. Uh, that then there could be wider Arab-Israeli peace, um, and that the path to Israeli-Palestinian peace wasn't kind of even handedness, which had been the the mantra for years, um, even though it was never completely even handed, even though it was very clear that that America's heart was with its democratic ally Israel and that the corrupt Palestinian leadership, as everyone knew was not exactly uh, our cup of tea, but it was necessary to work with it, of course, and we'd find a way to do that and try to be as honest a broker as one could. but 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 the trump administration dis, dispensed with those illusions <laughs> uh and it was very clear from the from from very early on that um it wanted to work with israel uh, if the palestinians would play ball um they'd be welcome to join the game uh, if not um too bad um so uh, you had, of course, the um, early on in the in the Trump administration, uh, the announcement of and then the actual move uh, uh, of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, um, which did not cause the uproar across the Arab world that some had been predicting. Um, you had um, the defunding of um, of UNRWA, UN Relief and Works Agency, which had provided funding aid rather for uh, Palestinian refugees and descendants of refugees, that's a whole other subject, whether it really is necessary to characterize to, um, the grandchildren of refugees as refugees, uh, if they're living in houses in, uh, outside of Amman, but that's another topic. Um, but the administration is sending every possible signal to the Palestinians that life was going to get harder for them if they didn't come back to the bargaining table um, on the terms that the United States would help set in, co- in, in coordination with Israel. Um, I'm losing my train of thought here, it's late, excuse me. Um, So you had, um, uh, as this was going on, as pressure was being put on the Palestinians, um, you had um, a plan that was being um, baked in the White House by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor. Um, to come up with a different approach uh, that would be outside of the framework of the usual Israeli-Palestinian negotiations um, that would have an economic component and a political component. Uh, And that was the plan that was uh, unveiled first in its economic uh, aspect in in June of 2019 in Bahrain. And then of course, the political aspect uh, that was unveiled on January 28th at the White House. Um, but, But even that plan, um, was really worked out, you know, really almost solely in cooperation with the Israeli government. Um, Palestinians having walked away from any contact with the United States after the announcement and um, by the Trump administration of its plans to move the American Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. The Palestinians figured at that point there was nothing they could talk about with the United States, and so why even bother? Terrible mistake. Um, the administration was on its own. Um, And then, uh, Peace to Prosperity in Bahrain, the announcement in January of uh, of the the vision for peace um, uh, that would uh, allow every uh, Israeli living in the West Bank to stay in his or her home, uh, even those who were in small hilltop settlements deeply embedded in what was typically regarded as uh, Palestinian territory, Area C. a Palestinian, a plan that was rejected instantly, of course, by the Palestinians and objected to by many in the Arab world, but not so vigorously objected to by Arab leaders. And the reason for all of this, the reason that um, Arab, the three Arab ambassadors attended the introduction of this, the rollout of this plan in January of this year, sitting in the East Room of the White House, two rows in front of me, the Bahraini, Omani and Emirati ambassadors to Washington. Um, the reason that 50-some-odd um, uh, heads of, of Muslim-majority governments, including the basically the entire Arab, almost the entire Arab League membership, were in Riyadh when the president visited there in his first uh, year in office. Um, the reason that you had a general warm regard for President Trump um, was had very little to do with Israel, If it had, had nothing to do with Israel. It had to do with the credit that President Trump had earned in the Arab world by his complete 180 from where Obama had left the uh, reputation of the United States in, especially in the Gulf, but not just in the Gulf, among Arab monarchs and autocrats. Um, that the United States would not be um, issuing press releases criticizing uh, your human rights records. Uh, it would not be Um, dealing with the Iranian regime uh, that threatens you. Uh, It would be uh, fighting the same enemies that you regard as enemies. And that means regional enemies and also maybe even domestic enemies. Um, The United States was really on the side of Arab autocrats and monarchs, um, not critical of them, Um, and and also was looking to do as as much business with them as possible. You'll remember, of course, the, how President Trump was so delightedly bragging about the weapons sales that he was planning to Saudi Arabia uh, in the course of his visit to Riyadh and then, and then in, the, in the months after, including for days or weeks after the murder of Shamal uh, Khashoggi in, in Istanbul, which is just two years ago last week. Uh, when, when President Trump basically was saying that um, he wasn't going to um, allow you know, something like this, which he never really labeled uh, murder, um, to get in the way of hundreds of billions of dollars of arms sales to the Saudis. Why would he do that? Uh, all the jobs that that would create in the United States. Um, so a very different attitude toward the United States was exhibited by these Arab leaders. Um, so you had a president who at once, um, earned the friendship of the government of Israel and the loyalty of, um, of Arab leaders. Um, certainly those in the Gulf um, who feel most threatened by Iran. We're, we're, we're most grateful for the United States pull out in 2018 from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, the maximum pressure campaign, um, every possible effort to, uh, to push back uh, against Iran. Um, even if in pulling out of the JCPOA, one could say, um, okay, uh, the United States applied pressure on Iran, but Iran is still making trouble across the region, is still providing weapons to the Houthis in Yemen and, uh, uh, and, and, and assisting the murderous Assad regime and uh, keeping Lebanon destabilized. Uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, the United States was on the side of these, uh, of these, of these Arab rulers. Um, and that is the climate in which the Abraham Accords was possible. That's the climate in which it was in which um, Israel could reach out to the United Arab Emirates in Bahrain, or they could reach out to Israel with the assistance of the United States, knowing that the U.S. was fully on their side. Um, that they had a common enemy. They could do business together. Palestinians had made themselves irrelevant uh, with their corruption and their their whining and their lack of um, practical recognition of their own limitations and failure to seize opportunities that had been uh, given to them multiple times. Um, And so that positive climate is really what's characterized the last year or so and and Trump administration deserves credit for that um, without question. Uh, Now, going forward uh, and sort of coming back to the original title, I think, of this, of this talk, which had to do with US elections and Middle East policy. That sort of sets the frame for where the United States has been for the last 30 years, um, up and down with Arab states, um, mostly up with Israel, but sometimes with with, with criticism mixed in as well. Um, but I would say bipartisan criticism, um, which has been almost completely absent in the Trump administration, but, but existed uh, to one degree or another. At the same time, a close alliance. Uh, and, and, I, and I should point out that, of course, under President Obama, in his last year in office, there was a huge um, uh, uh, military. Uh, I'm sorry, memorandum of understanding, um, 38 billion dollar MOU between the United States and uh, and Israel for uh, uh, military assistance uh, for um, over, over the course of 10 years. Um, very significant. Um, it's been elaborated on a little further in, in on Capitol Hill. Trump administration has carried it forward as well, but but I don't want to neglect that aspect of of the Obama record toward Israel. So positive on intelligence, positive on on, on military um, sales and and and, and, and uh, uh, assistance going forward. Um, criticism on politics, um, and 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 regarded as having pressure on on, on Israel for um, how it would deal with the Palestinians, as well as disregarding the warnings of of Prime Minister Netanyahu on the nuclear deal with Iran, which uh, the Prime Minister regarded as a naive move on the part of the United States, even as um, certain people in the military establishment in Israel thought that it probably was the best deal that the United States could could achieve. Um, Now that sets the stage for where we are today. So it's 2020, um, you have, United States for the last uh, two plus years out of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and exerting maximum pressure on Iran. Um, You have an administration that um, will work with Israel to widen the circle of Arab-Israeli peace, Um, an administration that is not expecting much in the way of progress of the Palestinians unless the Palestinians are willing to um, speak honestly with their people about the more limited state that is uh, in their future, rather than this kind of maximalist, uh, unrealistic dream uh, of what might have been, but is no longer really possible in any kind of practical way, uh, given the hundreds of thousands of uh, Jews who are living in the West Bank. Um, Some adjustments can be made, certain swaps can be done, uh, but it's not going to be what uh, Yasser Arafat promised and what Mahmoud Abbas has refused to unpromise uh, in the years that he's been uh, Uh, leading the Palestinians for the last 15 or so years. Um, A Joe Biden administration um, would take, I think, a different approach in certain respects. Uh, There would be some consistency, I think, in in American policy, Um, beginning with Iran. Um, And I'll tell you that, uh, that the American Jewish Committee has been discussing with um, Biden advisors and with others in the Democratic Foreign Policy Establishment, uh, the issue of Iran and how to move forward after uh, an administration, if, 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 if he were to take office, um, in light of where we are today with Iran. That uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, negotiated in 2014 into 2015, um, agreed to in, in, uh, in mid-2015, um, conditions are different five years later, um, Iran having um, gained certain assets that had been frozen, um, but for its own internal reasons, because I'm not sure how many of those assets actually went into the wars in in Syria or Yemen or elsewhere, um, didn't move in the direction that people were hoping uh, that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action it was hoped um, would of course um, reduced to a very tiny uh, quantity, the stockpile of enriched uranium, uh, would disable the plutonium reactor, um, would uh, pathway rather to to a bomb, um, would restrain the development of advanced centrifuges, uh, would uh, provide for greater inspections, all these aspects of of removing the immediate nuclear threat, lengthening the breakout time for Iran. that, that, that all of that had, um, that was put in place in 2015. In two by 2020, what we are seeing is um, even if the United States had, um, had not pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, the expectation is that, that Iranian behavior in the region would not necessarily have changed so much. It certainly didn't change before May of 2018 when the US pulled out of, of, of the nuclear deal. It was, it was heavily involved in Syria. It was heavily involved in Yemen. Uh, it continued to threaten uh, Gulf uh, uh, Sunni uh, Arab states in the Gulf. Um, so, the expectation that uh, um, that somehow 2015 nuclear deal would be transformational in Iran um, uh, was asking a lot, and it doesn't seem to have doesn't seem to it didn't seem to have played out in 2018, and certainly today uh, with the U.S. having pulled out. With Iran now increasing its its uh, stockpile of enriched uranium, uh, putting on more advanced centrifuges um, uh, and making it more difficult for uh, for um, IEA inspectors um, all of that suggests uh, we can 't just go back to two thousand and fifteen if the United States wanted to uh, under under President Biden. Um, he has spoken, and his advisors have spoken about the United States wanting to re-enter the JCPOA under the, on the condition that, that Iran complies with the agreement as it was signed in 2015. Um, what he has also said, and certainly a point that we have made consistently uh, with um, advisors to, to, uh, to Vice President Biden, um, is that it's not enough. Um, it's not enough for the United States just to uh, have Iran stop doing its bad things on the nuclear side, continue to do its bad things on the non-nuclear side in the region in missile development. Um, and, 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 and also recognizing that the timelines that were sort of in the middle distance in 2015, are no longer in the middle distance in 2020, um, the end of, of the restrictions on centrifuge development, et cetera, um, there has to be something else. Uh, it's not—it's not good enough just to rejoin the JCPOA, and so what we've heard from 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 Vice President Biden, and what what we just heard from from Tony Blinken in an interview that he gave a few days ago, uh, as he has said before, including as he has said on on an AJC um, a program that we had him on um, a, a few weeks ago, that um, the United States would 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 want to reenter diplomacy. Um, We'd want to work closely with our allies, with the E3, um, Britain, France, and Germany, uh, to not just have the JCPOA, but to build on the JCPOA, um, to focus on the other issues that were neglected, um, could not be included in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And that means missiles, and it means lengthening significantly the the timelines, um, if not indefinite, Prevention of, uh, of of Iranian enrichment, uh, at least at least stre- stretching it out far, far more than it had been the case. Doing something on inspections as well, and something about regional activity, and that we could and that the United States could actually be in the position to to achieve that um, if it was cooperating with our allies instead of working in opposition to our allies. And that, of course, is the current state of affairs. Um, so under a Biden administration, I would expect. Some movement toward rejoining JCPOA, but but parallel to that, um, movement toward corralling allies uh, into a, a very different kind of a framework um, that uh, that would I would imagine uh, involve taking the brakes off of certain uh, of the uh, of the sanctions that have been imposed on Iran, so loosening uh, the sanctions on Iran conditioned on on certain Iranian behavior. Um, but but I hope, but I, I worry, um, but the hope would be that in short order, there could be negotiations toward something stiffer, longer, um, more secure. Um, but there's an element of concern about this because if you loosen the restrictions on Iran and if you make it easier for the Iranians to fund their nefarious activities in the region, um, uh, you're going to... Have the same negative consequences in the Gulf. Uh, you're going to have the same uh, um, blood that's being shed across the region, uh, thanks to Iranian terror and um, and ambitions. Um, so I'm worried about that. But it's it's that that's that's the direction like I can I can see playing out under a President a President Biden. But I can also see under a President Biden, and he has said this himself, when he welcomed the Abraham Accords on September 16th, the day after they were signed at the White House, uh, that that he would want to build on the momentum achieved um, in the Trump administration in assisting in the widening of the circle of peace between Israel and Arab states. Um, There are a number of states that are clearly in line for um, uh, the possibility of uh, normal relations with Israel, normalizing their relations with Israel. Oman would be in that category, Uh, Sudan is clearly in that category as well, um, once certain Issues involving its uh, inclusion in the, des- in, the, in, the, in the list of uh, state sponsors of terrorism uh, and there is some uh, political progress on that front as well as uh, economic assistance package that the Sudanese desperately need um, as they s- struggle through their transition from, um, from the tyranny uh, of uh, Bashir to uh, something uh, more promising in the future. Um, I can see a, a Biden administration moving forward um, on those fronts as well as uh, As on the Saudis, Uh, the Saudis have indicated uh, a certain um, uh, acceptance uh, of uh, the momentum that they see in the smaller states uh, uh, on their uh, alongside Saudi Arabia in in the GCC. Um, There have been indications by a number of prominent Saudis that they would like to see themselves moving in the same direction over the coming years. Some of this depends on the willingness of King Salman to uh, kind of break with his uh, tr- more traditional approach to uh, Arab-Israeli peace predicated on Israeli-Palestinian peace. Um, but, uh, but that's very obviously the direction that uh, Mohammed bin Salman would like to take it. Um, and I can see a, a President Obama, excuse me, a President Biden, hmm, Freudian slip, um, moving in that direction as well. Now, what I think you'll also see, um, if it were President Biden, um, is a renewed focus, and he's he's made this very clear, as has uh, Tony Blinken, as of others around in the in the Biden circle, uh, a, a, a more a more robust focus on human rights, certainly than has existed in the Trump administration, um, but probably not all that different from what we saw under previous administrations, Obama and uh, and George W. Bush as well. After all, it was under George W. Bush that you had this whole idea, um, one of the sort of theoretical foundations of the invasion of Iraq uh, was that uh, there would be an attempt to, to introduce democracy in the Arab world um, with Iraq. Um, good luck to you. Um, but, but but the idea maybe not of pushing democracy so hard in the Arab world, but at least pushing back against uh, the worst abuses, the worst human rights abuses. Um, so it is entirely foreseeable that you would have an Obama in a Biden administration, um, a return to a more typical American approach on human rights um, and that means uh, friction with Egypt, friction with Saudi Arabia, uh, probably less friction with some of the other Gulf states, um, but, um, but it will change the atmosphere. What it might do, however, is uh, because you would also have certain criticism or at least a, maybe a different approach to Israel continued, of course, um, close support on the military front, on the intelligence front, but a more critical attitude toward Israeli uh, intransigence, as a Biden administration might see it, on peacemaking with the Palestinians. So you might have, again, an administration that was critical in certain respects uh, toward Israel, but also critical in certain respects toward Arab allies. Um, I wonder if that might not produce the same dynamic as American support for Israel and and Gulf states. Uh, You might have Israel and and its newfound friends in the Gulf um, feeling that they really have to stand together and um, push back against this this new misguided, naive uh, administration in Washington. So I I think that could be another interesting possible dynamic that will further um, expand Arab-Israeli relations. Um, I'm trying to think of other aspects of Middle East policy that would interest this group. But, but maybe the best thing to do is to stop there. I think, again, just to recap really quickly, I think under a Trump administration, Middle East policy will continue on the same path. I think that although the president said that if he's reelected, within 30 days, he'll, the, the Iranians will be uh, suing for peace with the United States on on, on, on the nuclear front to uh, restore their crippled economy. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but But you'll have a Con- increasing ratcheting up of pressure. Maybe at some point the Iranians break, if that's even within their capability to do so. Um, you will have a continued American, um, I think, close partnership with uh, with Gulf Arab states, um, with President Sisi in Egypt as well, um, and 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 a very close partnership with with, with Israel. Um, we could talk about other parts of the world as well: China, Russia, North Korea. Um, obviously, uh, I'd see a continuation of of certain American policies, but but I know this focuses the Middle East. Whereas with a President Biden, I think you will have a continuation, maybe with this, with a lack of the same kind of obsessive drive of this administration, but but a continued um, a push by White by Washington on wider Arab-Israeli peace, um, general support for Israel. Um, An insistence on trying to get back to the bargaining table, trying to push forward um, the two-state solution. That's a formula that um, wasn't heard so much in the Trump administration. Um, You heard that formulation in the January 28th vision for peace, but but a very different kind of a two-state solution than what has long been envisioned. It would be a very much Swiss cheese approach to a Palestinian state, um, may or may not be terribly viable. Could be a basis for something, um, uh, to, to begin negotiations, but, but not viable the way it was presented. Um, but I think you would have a Biden administration that would want to return to a more traditional formula. Um, but recognizing, I very much hope, and of course, this will be a subject of much conversation with the Biden team if he does win, um, a more realistic approach to Iran, uh, and I hope uh, a seizing of opportunities that exist across the region for, uh, for, for Israel. Um, that will also strengthen America's um, reputation and, um, and 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 national interests in, uh, in in that vital region. Maybe at that point I will stop. I surprised myself by talking almost as long as I talked last
0: week. Um, and let's uh, and let's have a conversation.